Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8. The word of God speaks to us. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. This is God's word to us. Speed of God. Hey, good morning. Y'all can grab a seat. Thanks for being with us. Uh, if we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. So good to have you with us. Uh, to the theological nerds in the room, happy uh, Reformation Day weekend. And the three of you that care about that, hope you have a great weekend. For everybody else, happy Halloween. Hope it's fun. Uh, Devil's holiday or whatever it is. Uh, I don't think that's true, but glad you're with us today. My kids are coming to church today dressed up as uh, Harry Potter characters. So I'm either doing something really right or really wrong. I don't know. Time will tell. Uh, We're glad that you're with us. Hey, I want to say if you are just kind of visiting and showing up to the nine uh, and you're here and you're like, I don't really know where I stand with Church, Jesus, Christianity, we're just really glad you're here. We're not trying to sell you anything. If you have questions about uh, the claims of Christianity, we want to process that with you. Uh, We're all kind of on a spectrum. Some of us have been following Jesus for a long, long time. Others of us are kind of pretty new to this. So just wherever you are, we're glad that you're with us today and no question is off limits. So I'm excited about this passage today. It is wild. It is bonkers. uh, And we're going to get some time to, to really sit in it. So let me pray for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you don't have your Bible, uh, we'll have it up on the screen, but if you have it, go there and we'll spend our time there. Father, would you meet us today? Meet us with your word. Meet us with truth today. And even this passage that maybe at first feels so foreign or not very realistic to our lives, would you just, would you just shape us today by how helpful and profound this passage is? Would you teach us how to be people who deal with conflict out of your heart. So come and move. I don't assume that there's anything that I have to say that's going to be all that helpful, but your word is powerful and your word is helpful. So would you come and would you move and would you shape us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, a woman sued her church after slipping at a meeting at her pastor's house and spraining her ankle. And here's what she told her pastor. 
It's nothing personal, but I'm told I could get some money. Last year, a Presbyterian pastor in Indiana who was accused of sexual harassment by two uh, different women who were attending his church at the time, he responded to their accusation by suing them for defamation of character, saying that they fabricated the whole story. Then one of the women responded by countersuing him for calling her a liar. And another pastor in that presbytery that was involved in that whole uh, kind of investigation process had this to say. He said, for an accused teaching elder to sue his accusers in a civil court, it is ugly. Four months ago, uh, a group of members at McLean Bible Church, which is uh, where David Platt serves as senior pastor. Some of you guys have heard of David Platt. He's kind of a well-known pastor and author. Uh, A few members from his church uh, sued the church, seeking to overturn a vote regarding the installation of a couple of new elders. And shortly after, a Virginia judge dismissed the lawsuit, but those same members said that they would seek to appeal the court's decision. All of that to say, how should we as followers of Jesus, how should we think about conflict in the local church? Now, some of these stories or some of these situations might seem totally bizarre and outlandish and like not something that you and I would have to face or deal with on a very common basis. But if you're really going to do life in community, if you're really going to engage one another in the gospel and in community, then it's just inevitable, it's unavoidable, you will experience conflict with other people who are followers of Jesus. What do you do when that conflict happens? Like, what do you do to bring it down on maybe a more practical, basic level when you're the landlord and someone in the church is renting your property and they're laid on rent? What do you do then? What do you do when someone in the church steals from you? Or what's really common today, they borrow something and then they never return it, just never makes its way back. What do you do when that's your property? Or what do you do when someone is, when when you're going through a really, really, really hard time and your community group just has a felt lack of care for you and your situation? How do you handle the pain and the anger and the disappointment of that? Or what about this? What about just when someone in the church wrongs you in some form or fashion? How do you handle the wrongdoing that was done? Well, with all of that said, I've got really good news for you today and really, really bad news for you today. The good news is that the Corinthian church loved to run and jump on all kinds of landmines, and they have literally done all these messy, broken things that you and I could ever fathom so that we can watch their failures and watch Paul correct them and actually learn from their mistakes. So the good news is like we actually know answers to these complicated questions because the Corinthians have gone first and they've done it wrong. So praise be to God for the Corinthian church. We can learn from their mistakes. That's the good news. The bad news is that the more we study this church, the more we see what was really going on in this church, the more we realize that they're a lot more like us than we would ever dare admit, that some of the things inside of us happen to be inside of them as well. So with all of that in mind, let's jump in. Let's kind of work our way through the text, and then we'll make some observations along the way. Look at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? All right, let me set up the situation. So 
We're not exactly sure the specific finer details of the story, but what we do understand from the context is that apparently there are two Christian brothers or two people in the church, men or women, we're not sure, that had issues with one another. So Christian A had been wronged by Christian B. Uh, We're not sure if it was related to property or possessions or something, but we know it was a trivial matter from what Paul says in the context. So Christian A, rather than going to Christian B and saying, hey, you've wronged me, you've done something that is, that is hurtful or, you know, dealing with the conflict inside of the church or even bringing the elders along to deal with the conflict in, inside of the leadership structure in the church. What Christian A did instead was bypass going to Christian B and ran out to the city and dragged Christian B to the court system in the city of Corinth. Now, to understand the court system in the city of Corinth is helpful to get a little bit more of the background of why Paul is apparently very irate and is going to be taking sarcastic, angry jabs at this church for all of chapter 6. So here's why this was a big deal. In Greco-Roman cities in the first century, specifically in Corinth as well, the, the way that the court system worked was you would have local magistrates that would set up shop inside of the marketplace or inside of the city center. So if you had an issue with someone, the, the common city approach was not to deal directly with that person, but it was to bring them to the marketplace or bring them to the town square and sit, sit the issue before the magistrates. And then publicly, like all of these people that are out just, you know, buying whatever you buy at the grocery store, would stop and watch this chaos unfold as a source of entertainment. It was highly dramatic, highly theatrical, where all these court proceedings and all these adjudication processes are unfolding, and people in the city would just be watching as one person is yelling against the other person and saying, they did me wrong here, and the other person's going, no, I didn't, you did me wrong here, and does this sound familiar at all? Like, is, can you think of anything that's a source of uh, cultural entertainment, watching people sue one another, and we're just sitting around enjoying the process? Like, let me show you this. Does it sound like this at all? This is what was happening. Now, I have, a, I have a confession to make. I did go through a stretch of my life when I was 18 where on my lunch break, I regularly watched Judge Judy. I don't know why. My soul was in a dark place. I enjoyed it. And then I became a pastor and started to live it. And so I'm just kidding. Actually, I'm not really kidding. I'm sort of kidding, right? It's like, that, so I, I, get the, I get the draw. But this is what was happening in the city of Corinth where people were suing one another and it was becoming this hilarious, fun entertainment thing. And no one knew how to deal with conflict in a mature, healthy way. Paul is not really worried that the city of Corinth is doing this. But he's absolutely floored that brothers and sisters in Christ are doing this. So think about it from his perspective. He's got two people who are both bought and brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ. That God has actually forgiven their sin, brought them together into the church, made them a part of the body of Christ. He's actually adopted them as sons and daughters into his family. And instead of them being able to relate out of gospel realities with one another, they've now taken the, the, the themes and the concepts and the vision and the, the ways of the city, and that had become their way of dealing with conflict. Paul is absolutely livid. In chapter 5, which is what we looked at last week, where a guy is sleeping with his stepmom, and 
uh, ends up, you know, railing against the church for that and saying, you got to kick that guy out. The problem in chapter 5 is similar to the problem in chapter 6. The problem in chapter 5 is that they are refusing to judge someone in the church who claims to be a follower of Jesus. Now in chapter 6, here's the problem. The problem is that they're still refusing to exercise proper judgment, but actually abdicating their responsibility as Christians and handing that responsibility over to the city to make those judgments. That's the problem. So what Paul is going to do in his brilliant, sarcastic, fuming way is he's going to give them a barrage of questions. What what I think would be good at some point today for you to do is just read this whole chapter again, verses 1 through 8, And what you'll notice is he asks eight questions in eight verses. And all of them are just about sarcastic. All of them are, uh, you know, really biting and painful because he's trying to wake them up to just how distorted and dysfunctional they've become and opposite of the heart of God for them. Now, notice what Paul is going to go on to say in verse four. He says, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church, people in the city that have no relationship or standing in the church. I say this to your shame. Man, I wish I could just pause here and preach a whole other sermon about the differences between illegitimate shame and legitimate shame, but we as a culture have an allergy towards shame at all, and we think all shame is bad shame, and I just want to say, like, there's actually some shame that is good. Some shame is a gift. There are things that you and I do that at times actually are shameful, and the gift is to recognize that and not run from God in our shame, but actually go to God for clothing in our shame. Illegitimate shame makes you hide, makes you protect makes you run. Legitimate shame is a good thing. And what Paul is actually doing is saying, you should feel shameful for your actions here. I wish I could preach a whole other sermon on that. We We don't have time. Can it be, he says, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? Man, is Paul spicy right here. I mean, he is just... Uh, taking them to task over their dysfunction. Now, here one, one other comment here that I think is really incredible. If you've been with us in the series, you know that one of the biggest issues is that the Corinthians thought that they were wise. They actually thought that Paul was the foolish one, that they had graduated beyond Paul's intellect, that they were the mature ones, that they were the godly ones, that they were the super spiritual and wise ones. And here Paul, with a very sarcastic jab, says, Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Oh, for all your wisdom, you're telling me there's not one person in the church that's wise enough to handle this problem, that you've got to offload it to the city? Now, what Paul isn't saying here, and this is super important for you to get, to be crystal clear, these verses are not suggesting that Christians should never go to court and that they should handle all their issues in-house. That is not actually what he's saying. In fact, if you read the rest of the New Testament, what you're going to find is that Paul writes very positively about the rightful place of government and judicial authority and in their role in restraining evil in our world. So Paul is not saying that the church should handle criminal affairs or cases of abuse or in situations where people have been deeply wronged that we should cover it up and just try to have the elders of the church handle it and cover up sexual abuse scandals and all that. Paul's not saying that at all. In fact, we're not talking about even something major happening in the church. He says in verse 2 that this is a trivial case, 
petty church fights is what he's talking about. He says in verse 3 that this is about, quote, matters pertaining to this life. Or another way to translate that, this is about the everyday stuff of life. This is about everyday normal affairs. This is about two people that have issues that should be mature and uh, have the gospel shape how they deal with those issues, but are not. That's what Paul is talking about. Okay, with all of that said, what does this have to do with us today? Like, I've been in pastoral ministry now for 15 years, and thankfully, thankfully, if I'm honest, as I reflected back on the last 15 years, uh, Christians suing one another in the church is a pretty rare phenomenon in my 15 years of pastoral ministry. It does happen, and I know that it's something that people have to deal with from time to time, but I can count on one hand the amount of times that this has been an issue where you had one Christian in the church sue another Christian over something silly. Like, this is not really something that I've seen in our context today. So how does this passage about believers uh, dragging each other to court and suing one another How does that translate to your everyday life and my everyday life? Well, here's the first thing that I want you to see. I want you to think with me about our culture's approach to conflict. I want you to think with me about our culture's approach to conflict. Look again at what he says in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another. This is where we relate to the passage. We have grievances with other people from time to time. It happens. Our culture experiences grievances with one another from time to time. And what Paul is doing here is he's critiquing the Corinthian church for how they handle those grievances. So here's the question. What does our culture do? What does our city do when one person has a grievance against another person? Let me just offer you a few things that I think we do. The first is social media bashing. We actually don't drag each other to the court system of our day, the local town square where there's physical magistrates sitting there. But what we do is behind the safety of our keyboard or our phones, we put each other on blast on social media, dragging it out to this highly publicized, highly theatrical, overly dramatic system where we get to adjudicate our issues with that other person publicly in front of everybody else. And then everybody else gets to jump in and give their opinion and then let them judge. And just like Corinth, you and I get the excitement and the rush of being vindicated publicly on social media. And we get the delight of watching shame be brought on the the loser, the one that we feel like has wronged us. Social media bashing. Another one is triangulation. Triangulation is just simply describing when I have an issue with this person, instead of going to that person to deal with my issue, I bring in a third party. I create a triangle. So what I do is instead of dealing with the person that I have an issue with, I go to someone else and I process my issue with this person with this person. By the way, this person has no ability to actually help the situation at all, but I feel better because all of the energy and the charge and the frustration I felt has been offloaded to this person, but the issue's still there. Triangulation. Another one is gossip. We deal with our grievances by gossiping about the person that we have an issue with. Uh, The best definition of gossip that I can think of is actually a series of questions. It's this, should this information be shared with this person at this time in this way? And if you can't answer yes to all those questions, then it might be actually that what you're doing is not healthy dialogue and conversation about your issues. It might be that we're gossiping. Another way that we deal with our grievances is with 
entitlement. Entitlement is something that Paul's going to be pressing on in this text. Entitlement is the heart posture of being overly concerned with your legal rights, being overly concerned with your possessions, with what you are owed, with winning, with being right. It's being more concerned with being publicly vindicated than it is to actually process your disagreement with that person with love and forgiveness and with maturity. Another one that we do is avoidance and abdication. Oh, you wrong me? You do something that hurt me? I'll just avoid you. I'm not going to have the conversation. I'm not going to talk with you. I'm going to move community groups. I'm going to move churches. I'm going to just avoid you like the plague and abdicate my responsibility to have a healthy conflict with you to somebody else. Another one is fragility. Fragility. This is where you and I have an overly easy, offendable heart super, super thin gospel skin that like the smallest thing bothers us so much more than it should. It it drives us crazy more than it should. It offends us and our sensibilities more than it should. Fragility. Let me give you two more because I know this is super encouraging. Um, Failure porn. Failure porn is something that our culture absolutely loves. Uh, Take a public figure, a pastor, uh, a leader has a moral failure. And instead of processing the grievance that, we, grievance that we have with that brother or with that sister in a healthy, mature way, or if we're not even connected to the situation, just realizing that we're not even connected to the situation, what we do instead is that we engage in popular podcasts and blogs and news headlines, and we do it, sadly, all in the name of justice and, quote-unquote, protecting the innocent and protecting people. But actually, what failure porn ends up doing is producing inside of us slander, and self-righteous judgment, and cultivating a heart posture that revels in failure without having any redemptive burden for the person that failed at all. And then the last one that we do is cancel culture. If you do something I don't like, then I'm just going to cancel you. I'm just going to absolutely cancel you. I'm going to get you shut down and shut out, and I'm going to slam the door shut for any sort of repentance and any sort of restoration. Okay, so Here's what's happening here. Like Paul's addressing the church with their inability to handle conflict well. And what we're actually looking, if we look deeply at this church and their issue and what was happening in their own culture, is it's sort of holding up a mirror for you and for me of how often what we find and what I find in my own heart is that I'm a lot more like Corinth than I would dare to admit. That the mirror is reflecting back on me and I'm realizing I don't handle grievances with my brothers or my sisters well. So how does Paul address this issue? Well, here's the second and really the final thing that I want you to see. Paul is going to address conflict with kingdom realities. He's going to address their conflict with kingdom realities. I love that Paul doesn't just tell them to stop. Because I think if I were writing this letter, I'd be like, in my best dad voice possible, guys, stop it now right? Please stop. Like you're suing each other over silly things. You've got to stop that right now. Instead, Paul doesn't do that. What he does is he offers them kingdom logic, logic about the kingdom of God and the future and what the gospel hope that we have, how that shapes the conflict and the ways that we deal with conflict together. Notice what he says in verse two. He says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining 
to this life. Here's the first thing I want you to see out of this. Paul addresses uh, with kingdom realities the fact that in the age to come, Christians will function as judges over the whole world. Now, I love this. I love that he asks two rhetorical questions. He's like, don't you know that you're going to judge the world? Don't you know that you're going to judge angels? To which like most of us in the room are like, no, Paul, I did not know that. Thanks for letting us know. That's new information. I didn't know that that was a part of the whole you know, Christian thing is that we're going to get to judge the whole world. But here's what's crazy. That actually is taught in the New Testament repeatedly. That to be a follower of Jesus is not just to be forgiven of your sins, but it's to be raised and seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places, and that you and I are actually going to function in the new earth as kings and queens and judges over the whole world. Luke 22, verse 28, Jesus speaking with his disciples says, you are those who stayed with me in my trials, and I assigned to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table and my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, some of you are like, well, yeah, but that's the 12 disciples. Of course, they're going to get to do that because they're special, but not every Christian is like the 12 disciples. We're not all going to get to do that. Well, hang on. There's other texts that you need to see. Revelation 2, verse 26, uh, writing to the churches, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him. I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots, pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Something similar is said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. Another thing is said in Revelation 20, verse 4. There's other texts in the New Testament that hint and explicitly state this reality. Here's the point, friends, that actually this world right now and what God is doing inside of this world right now is just simply a dress rehearsal for the coming kingdom of God. That the way that you and I as Christians engage with conflict and adjudicate and judge and handle grievances with one another and process things that are difficult and messy and complicated, the way that we're learning to do that now is teaching and training us for how we're going to do it in the kingdom of heaven one day. That is a big deal. Here's how Gordon Fee says it. The absurdity of the Corinthian position is that God's newly formed people will someday judge the very world before whom they are now appearing and asking for a judgment. Not only does such an action give lie to who they are as the people of God, but it is done in the presence of unbelievers, the very people for whom the church is to exist as God's alternative. The second kingdom reality that Paul brings in real quickly is this. It's that the wisdom of this world is actually incompatible with God's wisdom. It's incompatible. Like, notice what he says on at least three occasions. He makes a stark distinction between Christians, followers of Jesus, and non-Christians, people who are not followers of Jesus. He says this in verse 1. He says, when one of you is a grievance against one another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? He says this in verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? He says this in verse 6, but brother goes to law against brother, and then notice the shock, and that before unbelievers? Why is Paul drawing such a stark 
contrast and distinction between followers of Jesus and people in the world who are not followers of Jesus. Well, here's the best way I know how to explain why Paul is doing this. Before our world was shocked by the 2016 election and how that affected our relationship with one another, before COVID, before the debates over masks and vaccines and how we all realize that we're fractured at every level as a country, before all of those things, the truly greatest divisive issue of our generation was actually over this vital question. What color is this dadgum dress? What color is it? And I remember being blown away because it's clearly gold and white. It's clearly gold and white. How many see gold and white? Raise your hand. You see gold and white? How many of you see blue and black? I don't understand you. That is crazy. Some of you are like, I see both. You're a sociopath. You need to get help, right? Here's the point. The point is like, oh my gosh, there are people in the world that because of the way that their eyes work, they see blue and black, and some people see gold and white. Those don't even look alike on the color spectrum. How is that possible? Here's my point, that people who are followers of Jesus are now seeing the whole world through a completely different color scheme. That the way we see everything, the way we see morality, the way we see sexual ethics, the way we see the good life, the way we see what maturity is, the way we see enemy love and forgiveness and money and wealth and possessions and marriage and relationships and singleness, and you name the topic, the way we see all of the world as followers of Jesus has now been radically changed. And those who are not followers of Jesus, they're not dumb. It's not that they don't have dignity. They matter and they're important and they're, they're often very wise and very capable. They just see the world through a very different color lens than we do. And Paul is saying the wisdom of the world is completely incongruent with the wisdom of God. You should be judging these trivial matters within the church with the wisdom of God, not dragging it to the wisdom of the world, which isn't actually wisdom. And then the last kingdom reality he brings in is that you and I can handle being wronged now because of the right that's coming for us one day. I love this line in verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Paul says it as if it's easy. Why not suffer wrong? Why not just be defrauded? Can I think of anything more un-American than just being okay with being wrong or being defrauded and living with it? How is Paul able to say this to us? How is he able to just say, hey, just be wrong. Just suffer the wrongdoing. Someone does you wrong, just let it be wrong. Someone defrauds you, who cares? How can he be so flippant about such issues? Here's why. Because Paul understands the real hope that we have in Jesus and just how far his blessings flow to all who are hoping in him, that the gospel is so much more than Jesus forgives me for my sins so that I can go to heaven one day when I die. It's more than that. It's he also makes us united to him so that all that Jesus has has been given to me as a gift and all of the future of this world is actually a part of my inheritance and one day I'm gonna reign and I'm gonna rule with Jesus and if I suffer wrong now, it's okay because he's going to make it right one day. If I get defrauded now, it's not that big of a deal. I'm a king or a queen reigning alongside of Jesus Christ. Why am I so worried about getting defrauded now? Jesus has done all things to put away my sin and my shame and my guilt, and he's doing something in our world to remove the curse of sin. 
Why could we not actually zoom out and realize the hope and the right that we have coming for us? So because of the right that is coming, friends, we can receive and absorb the losses and the wrongdoings now because we know that in Him, nothing can be taken away from us. We don't have to look to the systems of our day to vindicate us or to justify us. We can actually pray for those whom, with whom we disagree. We can love our enemies. We can do good to those who persecute us because we know the end of the story. And friends, you and I can live freed up from the tyranny of being overly concerned with this present age because we're banking all of our hope on the age to come. That's what Paul is driving at. So where do we go from here? Well, I want to invite you to cultivate an unoffendable heart. I want to invite you to cultivate an unoffendable heart. So many Christians, me included, often live with a sense of entitlement, suspicion, and a critical spirit, and very, very, very fragile gospel skin. And I actually think that what you and I are being invited into is to think less of ourselves in some sense so that we can realize that, man, the amount of times that I'm just sinning against God and disrespecting his authority and doing my own thing is so great that if he treated me the way I often treat people, I'd be a miserable, miserable person. But we actually have a father in heaven who is kind to us, patient with us, gentle with us. He understands our frailty and our weakness, and he doesn't just slap our wrists every time we mess up. He's so gentle, he's so kind, he's so patient with us. What if, it, what if over time we allowed his heart for us to actually shape our heart for other people so that over time we have a less offendable heart? I think that would be a real gift to show our city what it looks like to just rest inside of that gospel truth. The second and final thing I want to invite you to do is to allow Scripture to shape how you deal with conflict. When someone sins against you, someone does something wrong to you, uh, if you can't simply just absorb it and move on, then I want to ask you, have the conversation with the person. Go to them face-to-face directly and say, when you did that, it hurt me. When you said that, this is what I experienced. When this happened, here's what happened inside of my soul. I could be wrong, but I care more about our relationship than I care about this, and I want to deal with my problem with you. Will you help me? And when you can't get help that way, and you've tried to go to the person, bring one or two other people with you. And when that doesn't work, bring some of the pastors along, and we can figure this out. This is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 18. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the point, restoration. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And one other, Matthew 5, verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The point is that God actually cares about you getting right with a brother or sister more than he cares about whatever you're trying to offer him. And as Frederick Dale Bruner says it, God does not want to speak to a Christian who does not want to speak to another Christian, right? So deal with that first and then offer the gift that you have. 
Friends, what would it look like if our church learned how to deal with conflict where we go to the tension with one another because we are committed, our keys are on the table, and we're banking all of our hope on the age to come? I want to invite you, would you stand with me?